Thanks for listening to the Vertical Student Ministries podcast. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by what you hear. Hey, we have a very special treat for you for this leadership podcast. Pastor J.P. Dorsey, who is the director of North Point Bible College right here at Grand Rapids First in Grand Rapids, Michigan, shared an incredible leadership lesson at our previous chapel. Uh, And this is just a great, great lesson that we wanted to share with everybody else. And so I am just introing his message. Uh, So take some time. It's about 45 minutes. It is worth your time. Uh, This is probably one of the best leadership lessons and messages that I've heard in a long, long while. So take some time. Get ready to take some notes. It's one that you have to kind of go through slowly, process, but it's going to be worth your time. Tonight I want to talk about... There's three dead prophets and what they tell us. And I want to talk about um, being a prophetic people and a group of prophetic leaders. And I want to explain what I mean by that because automatically I think people have a couple of weird things in their mind. They automatically think by the time we get done here tonight we're going to lay hands on everybody and everybody's going to be wearing sackcloth and ashes and when the students walk in we're going to have bony fingers pointing out their sins. I mean that could happen I suppose. But let me give you a couple of background ideas before we get into it that I think will help us. And the first question that I have to ask is, and this is where we will bring up Plato and we'll come back to Plato at the end of our time uh, together tonight. But I want to ask this question, and that is, how do we learn about God? Because God is, and I'm, I'm asking you to ask some theological questions, how do you learn about God? God is fundamentally transcendent, and what that means is that you actually cannot represent him in any way that is physical. So the moment that you do something like describe God in an idea, you have said something that is untrue. You've actually said a thing about God that is not true. So if I say God is love, the only rubric, the only way that you come to know love is through your human experience. And so one thing I can guarantee is that whatever you mean in your head when you say God is love is not what God is. Are we good with that? Are, are we good? <laughs> Was that, a, oh, he's a heretic? Oh, or no. Okay, all right, I, th- I think we're good. So the question is then, like, how do we know about God? And to uh, an, an idea that comes up in answering that question, how do we know about transcendent things? How do we know about love? How do we know about holiness? How do we know about peace? All these things that we say exist, and we as Christians believe they exist primarily in God and are an emanation of his person into our world, How do we describe them? How do we experience them? For goodness sake, how do we communicate them in the next generation when the very moment that we speak about them, we're saying something that's untrue? How do we do that? So um, Plato, and you go ahead and bring up that uh, next slide there for me. Um, And anybody who's hung out with me for any time at all knows that I love Plato's Allegory of the Cave. It is one of the underlying ideas of Western civilization. Around the 5th century BC, Plato's hanging around and he basically has this idea, I'm going to walk up here. Can I stand on the couch? No, I won't do that. Um, and if I can explain this to you just briefly. So on the left-hand side, we have a fire. You, got, you good with me? All right, left-hand side, that's this side. We've got a fire, and then we have a bridge. That's what those guys are walking across. And they're waving their hands, and they're making shapes. And the fire, just like when you make little animals, shadow puppet animals, are shining, the fire shining past them, and on this wall on the opposite side of the cave, shapes that they're making with their hands and other iterations of the, 
uh, in the allegory of the cave, they're actually carrying shapes across that are being shined. In this case, they're making shadow puppets. And all of these people here at the bottom, it, that is humanity. And we essentially are chained to these posts, and our heads cannot turn left or right. We've never been outdoors. All we have ever seen, we were born in those chains looking at that wall, and we were raised on those chains looking at that wall, and we cannot talk to our neighbor. All we ever see is the shadow that's on that wall. And Plato says this is what a human is like trying to understand the world by looking at, and he uses this phrase, the forms of the world. And if, we can, if I can give you an example of that, if you say, well, I know about God because, you know, my, my mother loves me, he would say that is a form. So that is not love in the truest sense of the word, but it is a shadow of that reality. But it is not that reality. And he argues that the reality of love is as different from the thing that you experience as a human. In our case, the love of God is as different as the thing you, from the experience you have as a human, as these shadow puppets are from a real donkey outside of the cave. That they are that different from each other. And so, in his story, The Allegory of the Cave, he basically is arguing, okay, so the only way that we can know things about the things that matter in life, love, justice, God, peace, hope, all of those things, are through human interactions with words and ideas and our bodies and our, the things we taste and see, all of our senses, and yet somehow we're supposed to know the transcendent God when all we ever have is non-transcendent material. So I'm supposed to understand through the flawed things that I experience in life something about God. Now in, as this story goes on, one of these prisoners breaks loose and they leave the cave. And for the very first time, they see something. They see the sun, and they see a real donkey. And in his allegory of the cave, the sun is called the Logos. We'll come back to that. It is the ultimate iteration of reality. And that person is blinded. And they're like, now I have really seen the real deal of life. I know what love is. I know what hope is. I know all of that stuff. And he goes back in, and he tries to describe it to the rest of the prisoners, and they think he's crazy. And they refuse to go with him, and they live the rest of their life in chains staring at the wall. Now, we'll come back to that part of it later, but the fundamental question that I want to make sure that we understand first is that, that our world, the way that it's organized, everything you experience, from the moment you get up, the things that you see, the things that you taste, the things that you touch, the culture that you're a part of, the way architecture works. For instance, right now, we're saying something very important. I, we are architecturally organized in a way that has certain presuppositions about, you know, what we value, and we said, hey, we value teaching, and therefore we put a person who speaks at the front, and we, we, everything is teaching us something. And all of those things are forms, and they're designed to teach us about God. Okay, are, are we all good with that? Good with that for a second? Okay. Now, we could talk about that all night, but we won't. So the second thing is then, well, what does it mean to be prophetic? Well, if we're going to be prophetic leaders, what we're really asking is, what are the forms that culture is putting on the wall in the world that do not adequately at least echo the reality of who God might be. Because we don't just learn about God, contrary to what we think, we don't just learn about God when someone stands up and says, everybody open your Bibles. You learn about God from the very moment you are conceived in your mother's belly. You start to learn about nurture, you start to learn about care. If we withhold care and interaction from you, even in the womb, you will have trust issues for the rest of your life. In fact, we know my mother, uh, my mother's a psychologist, 
And um, some of you, maybe if we went around the room, you could tell stories exactly this way, that your view of God has been deeply entrenched in you already before you ever believed in God by your parents. She happens to deal with people who these days mostly have been survivors, victims first, survivors though, of sexual abuse, and the ability that they have to say something simple like our Father who art in heaven becomes incredibly challenging when the picture that is there about God, the form that has been presented to them, is a faulty one, deeply broken and flawed. So somehow we intuitively know the things that are happening to us in the world are designed to teach us about God. Do you know, every meal you eat is designed to teach you about God. Every interaction you have with a human, imago Dei, the image of God, is supposed to teach you about God. Every song you hear, every sight you see, everything. But all of those forms can be broken. So our goal as prophetic people is, what are the ways in which our present form world, our form culture is most deeply broken so that we can prophetically behave, not just speak, but behave against it. Because that is the place where people are most likely to encounter God, is when we speak against the sins, against the sinfulness of the forms that is the deformity of the forms that culture is putting forward. So I want to, if I can, and I've brought some uh, books with me to help me do this tonight, I want to uh, share with you about... um, Three books that I think are particularly appropriate and um, deeply, deeply prophetic uh, for our time. And what I mean by that is that they expose the inadequacy of the forms that cultures are putting forward. And what we're really going to be asking tonight is, if this is what culture is saying that is antithetic to who God is, how do we as leaders not just say things, but how do we put forms forward by our behavior when people come into this place they're gonna most directly lead them to think at least adequately about who God might be and what he might be like. Are, are we good? Are we doing okay? Doing good? Okay, fantastic. So the first book that I think is probably one of the greatest prophetic books ever written is um, Horton Hatches the Egg <laughs> by Dr. Seuss. I actually mean this. Uh, I could preach an entire series out of uh, Dr. Seuss books. And Dr. Seuss teaches us something important, and it is that showing up matters more than showing off. Now, this is actually really cool because entry level for us as leaders in the community of God, people who want to influence people, is something very simple. But I, 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 I deeply, deep, I'm like, I've got this thing in here. I hope I can communicate it. It is so vitally important that this generation experiences leaders who know what it looks like to just be present and be faithful. Yeah, like we, we deeply undervalue just showing up. And now how many know this story? How many don't know this story? Oh, Pastor Reggie, you wanna sit on my lap? I'll read it to you. <laughs> I didn't know he was going to call him a bluff. All right. <laughs> I'll, give you the, I'll give you the short version. So the short version is, and I love Dr. Seuss. The short version is, I'll sum up and then I'll give you a little bit of it. There is a bird named Maisie, and Maisie has decided to go and be irresponsible and get pregnant. And she, she, she's not married. It's, it's horrible. It starts out with infidelity and adultery. It's bad. I don't know who wrote this stuff for children. <laughs> Maisie's just out. She's not only lazy, but she's a floozy. But... <laughs> It's true. It's true. She can be redeemed. Come on. 
And she hatches this egg, and she's like, basically, she's like sitting on this egg the whole time that it's gonna hatch is just boring. And so she cons this elephant into sitting on her egg. And the elephant proceeds throughout the rest of the story to, to sit on the egg, which is basically what the rest of the story is about. So it's a good thing he's really good with words because that doesn't sound exciting when I say it that way. Side Maisie, a lazy bird hatching an egg. I'm tired and I'm bored and I have kinks in my leg. From sitting, just sitting here day after day, it's work how I hate it. I'd much rather play. I'd take a vacation, fly off for a rest if I could find someone to stay on my nest. If I could find someone, I'd fly away free. Then Horton the elephant passed by our tree. Hello, called the lazy bird, smiling her best. You've nothing to do, and I do need a rest. Would you like to sit on this egg in my nest? The elephant laughed. Why, of all silly things, I haven't feathers and I haven't wings. Me on your egg? That doesn't make sense. Your egg is so small, and I am immense. <laughs> tut, tut, answered Maisie. I know you're not small, but I'm sure you can do it. No trouble at all. Just sit on it softly. You're gentle and kind. Come be a good fellow. I know you won't mind. I can't sell the elephant. Please beg the bird. I won't be gone long. I give you my word. I'll hurry right back. You'll never be missed. Very well, said the elephant. Since you insist, you want a vacation? Go fly off and take it. I'll sit on your egg and I'll try not to break it. I'll stay and be faithful. I mean what I say. Toodaloo, sang out Maisie and fluttered away. Throughout the rest of the book, Horton is variously ridiculed by his friends. He is then finally actually dug up on the tree. They put him on a boat and bring him to America and put him in a circus. But the whole time he's there being faithful, and maybe, maybe you know the word that, or the phrase that he says over and over again, I, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%. The part of the story that I love is when we get to the end because he's at the carnival and uh, everybody is paying to see this freakish elephant sitting in a tree watching Horton sit on this egg. And um, all of a sudden, who should fly by but Lazy Maisie? And she basically says, hey, it's, it's about time I'd like to have my egg back since it looks like it's about ready to hatch. And I love this. It says, there rang out the noisiest ear-splitting squeaks from the egg that he'd sat on for 51 weeks. A thumping, a bumping, a wild, alive scratching. My egg, shouted Horton, my egg, why, it, why it's hatching. Now, this is the best part, because the egg hatches, but at that very instant, the egg burst apart, and out of the pieces of red, white, and shell, from the egg that he'd sat on so long and so well, Horton the elephant saw something whiz. It had ears and a tail and a trunk just like his. Now, the point of Seuss's story, and he writes this actually at the time, for the first time, when American citizens have two families out of the home, two parents out of the home for the first time in all of American history. And he's actually talking about responsibility and investment, the power of showing up, the power of being consistent. And we are, if you were to ask sociologists, and your youth pastors are probably smarter than me on this, but all of the research I read says that there is one word or two words, same idea, that show up over and over again in all of the research, and it is the word abandonment and the word alone that no one is present for me in all circumstances. That my parents aren't there for me, I get involved in a romantic relationship and they say they'll love me forever and they bail on me, that falls apart, I fall in love with a TV series, it gets canceled, you know. 
And, and, but we're all the same way. We, to show you how deeply we have drunk of this, the fact is that you as a consumer probably, are you, how many will admit you are the kind of person that walks into a store, you see something you like, you jump on your phone to see if you can get it cheaper somewhere. The reason you do that is actually because of this dynamic, that we don't feel an obligation to the interactions that we're with as people. And by the way, I do it too on occasion, actually all the time. And, um, <laughs> but there is very, very low sort of commitment and fidelity. And the funny thing, and I love this story because sometimes in the church we think, oh man, man, you know, if I were, if I were gifted, man, I would really, really do something for God, man. If I could, if I could, you know, speak like so and so, if I could sing like so and so, maybe I'll just, you know, and I know none of you would ever do this, but I'll just volunteer until they really see the glory that is my skills. And when they see it, and they see how godly I am and how skilled and gifted I am, bam! I'm gonna break on the scene. God's gonna use me. It's the way we think. Come on now. Are y'all more spiritual than me? Some of you are like, apparently. <laughs> My, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm on staff. I know this is gonna sound, so I'm a, I'm a uh, slightly pudgy, balding, middle-aged man, in case you have not noticed this. I am on staff with all these amazingly good-looking people. I gotta walk around with Pastor Eric, Pastor John, <laughs> Pastor Reggie, and I'm just like, I'm their pity friend. You know, I'm their, I'm their pity friend. Or, you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time. My, my wife, uh, she loves and values her life based on her ability to be with our children. We homeschool our kids. And she's like, man, all of these women around, man, they, they speak and they do all this. And she's like, that's just not me. And that messes with her head. But I, I have really good news for us. The fact is, is that just showing up and being faithful is a big, big, big Big deal. Big deal. The fact that every week, week after week after week after week, the students who will come here, they will go, I know that person is going to be there. I know that person is going to be there. I know that person is going to be there. And I may not know them. I may not have a relationship with them. But there's something about the stability of it that is a form that reminds them that faithfulness might still exist. It's important. One of the most important things that any person will do for this ministry is just be there. I know um, I deal with this with my, uh, my kids. Now, I know none of you would ever be this way, but my kids don't always want to go to every event. Is it okay if I'm honest? And here's what I tell them. It's important that you be a visual reminder for your leaders by your consistent presence, that what they do matters. See, they can actually be involved in the same thing. It's just a big deal. For those of us who maybe in this room didn't grow up with stable homes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of us that did, it may take you a while to figure out that someone handed you a big gift. And that gift was believing that there are people in your life and there is a God in your life who will stick close to you. I just never had, I, I never had a problem believing that he was the God who stuck closer than a brother because I had parents that stuck closer than a brother. But not everybody's got that experience. And you just showing up is a big, 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 big deal. Cool. We good with that? All right, good. 
Um, Actually, pull these up real quick. I'm, I'm not going to read these, but if you want my PowerPoint, if you want examples, I love looking at culture. Go ahead and pull up the, the first. Uh, everyone know who Lord is? The singer, Lord? Um, it's actually, in my view, one of the most powerful songs written in the last couple of years. Um, does anybody know this song, Liability? You listen to it. Do you, do you cry like a baby? I cry like a baby. I have to... I am. I pull over and I'm just like, you're going to have to give me a minute. The cops pull over. Are you all right? So I'm like, it's just, anyway. Well, for those of you who don't know, so basically her whole deal is that faithfulness is gone. I'm a, I'm a toy, the truth is I'm a toy that people enjoy till all of the tricks I have, they don't work anymore. And I stop entertaining people and they're done with me and they're not pleased with me anymore. And they move on to their next thing. And the only person she can count on if you go to uh, another one of the verses is herself. And she goes home and she basically says, the only person I can really have a relationship with is me because I'm the only stable. I'm the only consistent relationship. They say you're a little much for me. You're a liability. And so they pull back. They leave me alone. They move on to the next relationship. Pull up the next one, Sam Harris. I, by the way, uh, if you like this song, I'm just going to tell you I have a secret loathing for this song. Because people sing it like it's a great ditty, and it's actually one of the most godless songs written in the last five years, ten years, however old it is. Um, and I don't say that to be like, hey, don't listen to Sam Harris. I actually think sometimes it's important we hear what culture is saying. Why? Because we need to know what forms they're messing up, so we know what forms we need to go full, full scale on. And Sam Harris, I mean, he basically, if you read this, he basically says, look, if you want to sum it up, I don't love you but I actually need somebody right now, but when love comes along, I'm done with you. It's the whole message of the song. Isn't that romantic? Right? Once you lay with me, I think we should probably have sex, but just so you know, as soon as somebody comes along that I think I love, we're done. But he says it so nice. Won't you stay with me? You know, it sounds like a little ditty, and I'm just like, you are a godless man. All right. Um, I only say that to say, listen to when, you're, when you are watching your shows, when you're listening to your music, listen to what people are telling you. They are putting up forms. And it isn't so we can sit there and go, oh, they're evil, they're bad. It's so we can go, hey, what forms do we need to be putting up? Because this isn't true. And in light of this continual narrative, just your showing up consistently is a big deal. It's a big deal. All right. I'm going to get a little more spiritual and hurt and hatches yet. All right. The second person, go ahead and pull up that next slide. The second prophet is Charles Pellington. How many have ever heard of Charles Pellington? Do not raise your hand because you'll be lying. Nobody knows who he is. I I just want to say that because I I really wanted to let you raise your hand so you'd look crazy, but I didn't. Charles Pellington, I fell in love with him about five years ago. I don't know who he is. What does that mean? (laughs) So I love books, and um, at one time, I'm embarrassed to say, I had three warehouses full of books. Uh, yeah, I've about 110,000 volumes. I'm down, though. I'm down. I'm kicking the habit, Try to get off hoarders. They got, want me on the hoarder show. Uh, about five years ago, I was trolling through some books, and um, I came across, uh, actually, the book I came across first was this one. And... Um, I bought it. I don't know if you can see it, but you can see up there. Do you see that page? That is an actual page from this book. Now, I'll tell you what struck me about this. 
I've been collecting books for a long time, and actually neither of these books, if they were in printed form, is very rare. So the first book is John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody ever heard of John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress? It's the first book, The Writings of John Bunyan. And the second book is a book called The Rise and Progress of Religion and the Soul. It's by Philip Doddridge. It's the book that William Wilberforce was reading when he came to Christ. In the early 19th century, which is when these books are from, you could buy these books literally for almost nothing. In fact, there were tract societies that if you showed up, they would probably give you a copy for free. So why are these books interesting? Because I picked it up, and there were two things that stuck out to me. The first thing is, I'll look at this one first, is that they were entirely handwritten. So this entire book, which was available literally for free in the year that this book was written, for some reason, somebody decided to take the entire book and write it out by hand. Why would someone do that? In fact, I calculated it out, if you care to know. That's 60 seconds per line, 24 lines per page, 24 minutes per page, 490 pages. That's 11,760 minutes or 196 hours that it took to write this book. About a year later, I was buying books again, and a second book showed up by the same dude. I'm like, is this guy in prison? I'm thinking this is some guy who killed somebody. He's in the joint, and he's got nothing better to do, so he's writing books. <laughs> Logical conclusion. <laughs> and then I read the introduction. All of it is by him, uh, the entire book written in his hand. But in the beginning of both books, he's written a very, very simple dedication on this page, which does not exist in the original book. Written in 1855, when he's 80 years old. This copy of a chronological critique of the writings of John Bunyan, along with his sermons, was written expressly for my granddaughter, Charlotte Pellington, Pond Street, by her grandfather, Charles Pellington, in the sincere hope that I, probably having been long gone by the time she comes of age, will read this book, will derive some spiritual comfort from it by receiving into her heart that blessed gospel which leads to everlasting happiness in the heavenly kingdom of God, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ our only mediator and savior. Amen. Boston, 1850. Charles Pellington teaches us that wasting time matters big time. It just wouldn't have been the same if he went down the road and he said, I'll go buy a copy of this, throw her name in the front and put it in a little box and when she's old enough, tell her her grandpa bought it for her. It's just not the same. I would actually like to argue that wasting time on people can be a prophetic act of resistance against our culture. Everything in our culture says we gotta hire people, we gotta maximize efficiency, we gotta maximize the product, where do we get the best deal, who has the best return policy, how do we get all this stuff done, how do we get all this stuff done, how do we do it most efficiently, if you don't get it done most efficiently, we're gonna get you off the team. Because we need production, 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 production. And that dehumanizes people. It turns them into cogs and objects and a system. 
And Charles Pellington, for the first time, and it had only been about 30 years since books would have been able, be able to be available that cheaply, the invention of the steam press. But he said, I realize there is value in my wasting my time on somebody. When I was um, about 13 years old, I was not a follower of Jesus, but something very important happened in my life. There was a girl named Valerie Wagenman. And um, she was like 19, and I was 13. In my view, she was the most beautiful human I'd ever seen in my life. She was the only 19-year-old girl I knew. (laughs) (laughs) And she knew that I wasn't doing well, I wasn't following the Lord, and she decided that she was going to invest in me. And about once a week, she'd call me up. I had no idea. I didn't know what was going on. I thought she liked me. <laughs> I kind of was hoping it would work out. And she would call me, and she'd say, hey, the church is playing a softball game tonight. You want to go hang out at the softball game? You know, she was a 19-year-old college student with a full-time job. But one night a week, Week after week after week after week after week after week after week, she wasted time on me. I know we all can't waste time on everybody. I get that. But tonight, when we get done, what I do want to do is I want to ask each and every one of us to say, Lord, would you give me a couple of students here that I can waste some time on? I'm not even talking about anything extra. I know how it is. I, I, I'm one of these guys, when I walk into a room, I want to I wanna make eye contact with everybody, touch everybody on the shoulder, say something to everybody. That, that's how I am. But I also realize there's times to put that aside, and the Lord says, here's some people that I want you to just waste time on. And here's what I want to do. When we pray about that, automatically, we, you know, and here's it. I'll, can I say something? Do not automatically think, man, and I know, I know, you want to be strategic. But don't automatically think, who, who's, who are the influencers? Who are the people, man, if they got turned on, they'd really do it for Jesus. Why don't you just say, who's my Charlotte? I mean, we don't even know what she is yet. She's like two. She poops her pants. So God, you know, I, I just believe this, that if every single person in this room will say, God, you give me my Charlottes, that all the Charlottes will be covered. And God can take care of administrating all of that. Well, who will God give you to waste your time on? You know, Jesus, I love, I love that Jesus wastes time. Isn't that crazy? He's going around doing stuff. You would think he would be like, okay, I got to tell who I am to every single person in the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to go door to door, knock, 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 check them off my list, so on and so forth. And all of a sudden you see people are pulling them aside and they're telling them, personal, they're telling them their personal problems and what's going on in their family. And, but hey, you want to go get something to eat? Want to grab a cup of coffee? And he's like, actually, I got about 400,000 more people I got to talk to before this gets done. I'm sorry, I don't have time for that stuff. He just believes that if he takes care of wasting time in a way that is prophetic on the people in front of them, that somehow that's going to have multiplication power, that he'll invest in them. And I just, 
I, I, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you to let God give your heart to two or three students. And that doesn't mean that you ignore all the rest of them or anything like that. I'm just saying, but there are those two or three that God says, these are your heart adoptions. These are the people that I'm giving to you. And I want you to waste your time on them. Yes, you will take time when you've got other stuff to do to just reach out to them and say, I'm thinking about you and praying for you. Yes, you will take time when you could be doing something else. Yes, sometimes you will look at a group of students and say, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to you, and I'm giving you all my attention. Right now, for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes till whenever you're done, I'm yours. Go ahead. I will gladly be spent for you. Then the third is, and I know you were hoping I would get to this, is the Bible. Uh, I know. I know. I know. Actually, it's the Gospel of John specifically. I told you that. We'd, are we doing okay? You give me like, give me like 10 minutes. We, is that okay, Pastor John? You can say no. I, I'll stop. You sure? Are we, are we really okay? Okay, all right. It's upside down. I can't read upside down. Um, the Gospel of John, go ahead and pull up the next one there. And that is, I want to say something that I, I hope you don't take it the wrong way, but feelings actually matter way more than facts do. I know there are some people in this room, and, and, and I get it. Like, we are, we're like, you know, tell me the truth, and I'll respond to the truth. But I can tell you, if that's you, you're the minority. Um, I hope I won't get myself in trouble um, by saying this, but if I do, I'll just avoid eye contact with Pastor John until I'm done. Um, so we, we, really, we really make decisions on what we believe has the biggest payoff for us. That's the way most of us do it. And, and that's normal. That's not because you're bad. That's just you're human. And Jesus did that. I'm giving my life for the reward. That's, that, that only makes sense. It's a matter of making sure we understand what really has value. That's the problem. And um, I love the stories. Anybody know the story Quitters Incorporated? By Stephen King. Okay, that's wicked. I heard about it once. <laughs> On NPR. All right. Um, it's a great story because what we, what we tend to think is, okay, if I tell people the truth, they're going to be like, whoa, that's amazing. And, and they're going to respond. Like, yeah, Jesus loves you. That's amazing. I'm going to respond. But the fact is, <laughs> people respond to their most immediate and their most pressing need. How do I get the thing that is affecting me most negatively right now? And the story Quitters Incorporated, the fact is if people responded to rational information, nobody would ever smoke in the history of everything. Like no one, no one would ever do it. But they don't. Knowing the facts, they go, actually, what's impor more important to me right now than my health when I'm 60 is my status when I'm 12. That's why people smoke, right? They make an assessment about what has the most value to them right now. And the Story Quitters Incorporated, there's two friends that have grown up together, they both smoked, and uh, one of them sees the other one, they haven't seen each other in a long time, and the one looks at the other guy and he says, great news, I quit smoking, he's like, that's awesome, how did you do it, I've never been able to do it, I've tried over and over again, I've tried patches, I've tried, you know, hypnosis, I've done the whole thing. And he said, I went to this place called Quitters Incorporated, you walk in, you give them 500 bucks, they have 100% guarantee that you will never smoke again. He's like, that's amazing. He says, where is it? And he gives him the address. He walks down, walks into this building, and literally in the room, there is nothing. Just two guys in black suits, shades, and fedoras, standing behind a table. And the guy's like, I must have made some mistake. I thought I came to Quitters Incorporated. He says, this is it? You want to quit smoking? He says, yeah. This is 500 bucks. Gives the guys 500 bucks, and he says, you did it. You quit smoking. The guy's like, I've been ripped off. <laughs> Walks outside, steaming mad, kicks the sidewalk, goes to light up a cigarette. Bam! Right across the jaw, somebody clocks him. I said you quit smoking. 
The guy's freaking out, running down the road, huffing and puffing. He thinks he finally gets away from him. He goes into an alley, goes to light up a cigarette, baseball bat to the kneecap. I said, you quit smoking. Next time your wife loses a finger. So the guy's like, all right, he's freaking out now. He does quit smoking. He is madder than a hornet at the dude who told him to go to this place for about two months. But, you know, after a while, he's like, all right, I'm glad I quit. He happens to see the friend again, and, and they, they kind of laugh about it. And he's like, yeah, I knew if I told you, you wouldn't go, but you'd be happy in the long run. He said, why don't we celebrate and get together for dinner? And the closing scene of the book is they're all toasting, and he looks over, and the other dude's wife is missing her finger. <laughs> I say all that to say, those decisions, we make decisions based on feelings, and the feeling was fear. In that particular case, the rational decision was to never stop smoking, the rational decision was to quit smoking, but until an experience or a feeling comes full frontal with him, he cannot make the change. The experience has to lead. And you all are that way. That's why people end up in crazy relationships. The feeling leads. That's why people make crazy decisions. The feeling leads. And I told you we'd get back to uh, Plato. And funnily enough, uh, Plato's cave actually is the exact textual background for John chapter 1. And John chapter 1 is actually a retelling of Plato's allegory of the cave, written 500 years earlier. And here's what it says. Remember, what was the, what's the thing called outside of the cave that gives light to everything? The Logos. Let me read you John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Logos, the ultimate iteration of love, of kindness, goodness, grace, mercy, justice, humility, compassion. And that Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. In fact, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, just like it did in our allegory. In fact, pull that back up for me, if you will. Can you go all the way back there? The light actually shines underneath. You can't see it in this particular drawing from an entrance exit from the cave that goes right underneath that bridge. And it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the best translation of this next line is, and the darkness did not comprehend it. They couldn't understand what was going on. But there was a man sent from God. This is the guy who broke loose, got outside and saw the Logos, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about that light, that all men might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about it, the true light which gives light to everyone. And here's where it gets radical. Radical. Is in the story of the allegory of the cave, it ends with everybody in darkness, everybody trapped, because the Logos is outside the cave, and they're trapped in the darkness. And in our story it says, but that light came into the world. Now, here's the important thing. John understands, and I'll, I'll wrap up very quickly, but John understands that seeing God through the forms is very challenging. One of the main themes in the Gospel of John is that it's hard to know stuff about God. In fact, go back and look at it. One of the best teachers in the entire world, Nicodemus, has a hard time knowing about God, but he has an experience with him. You meet the woman at the well. She's like, you want to have a conversation about who God is and how we should worship God? And God, Jesus says, no, I'd actually rather you have an encounter 
with God. We have Mary and Martha. They've lost their brother uh, uh, Lazarus, and they're looking at him saying, I don't understand what happened. Tell me the theology. Tell me what's going on. He said, actually, I'd rather give you an encounter with God because the forms are hard to read. We know that that's a challenge because the forms, A, are broken. So even under the best of circumstances, remember the forms don't equal the thing they're trying to mirror. So even if you have a great parent, it still doesn't tell you fully about God. But in a world that we live in, those forms are even broken, so we're kind of have double trouble in that way. And he knows it's hard. In fact, we had the account of Thomas, right? And Thomas says, I'll follow you, Jesus, anywhere you want to go. But then stuff goes wrong, and he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. And Jesus says, that's all right. What you really don't need is an explanation. What you really need is an encounter. And here is my contention. You can pull up, I don't know where I'm at in my notes. Can you pull up that? after going to that third point that we were at with John. There we go. Go to the next slide. This is my belief. If Pastor John says I'm wrong next week, just know I don't know what I'm talking about. I believe this generation of students will not be argued into believing. They won't be debated into believing or in any way intellectually or rationally convinced to believe. I believe the days where you could take someone and say, let me prove to you that evolution isn't real. Let me prove to you that this is real. Let me prove to you, and now you should be a Christian. I think those days are dead and gone. My view. Take it for what it's worth. In my view, they need to have a supernatural, miraculous experience that compels them to believe that no amount of intellectual doubt can wipe away. That they, because the fact is, I don't, that we know information is doubling at all the time. Like right? Pastor Sam says, you're getting dumber all the time. You literally cannot keep up with it. The fact is, is if you go on the internet, I was preaching at a church just uh, two weeks ago, and great group of, of uh, young people there and young adults, and here's what I said, and I think we would probably prove this true tonight, that now, because if you were to go on the internet, there are so many voices saying so many different things, and they are compelling, they are smart, they're slickly designed. It is a, the height of presumption that we should say as the church, believe us because we're the church. And so they're looking and they're going, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about the, whether it's creation or evolution or some kind of mix in between. I don't know if it's this or I don't know if it's that. And the reason that they don't know isn't because they're not, is there because they're, isn't because they're godless. It's because there is so much information and they're trying to make a good decision. And finally, they just crumble on the floor and they're like, dear God, what do I do? And we need to go, wait a minute. Let's start with first things first. Have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Have an encounter. I was not too long ago, and I, I promise I will, I will end with this story. Not too long ago, I was, because it illustrates this so beautifully, I was preaching at a church, and um, I was, happened to be preaching on marriage. And um, I, I've seen more miracles happen when I preach on marriage than any other subject, which is bizarre. It's phenomenal. I love it. And uh, I'm preaching, and I get done, and I told a story at the beginning about another church I had been at, where this couple had come to this town for the weekend to save their marriage. And the Lord had given me a word when I started preaching that there was someone in the church that that weekend was the last moment for their marriage. And they had literally come, didn't plan on coming to church that weekend, someone invited them to church, they'd come to that town for the weekend as a last-ditch effort to save their marriage. And got gloriously saved, blah, 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 you know, all that kind of wonderful stuff. So I told that story at the beginning of this. I look over at the end of the service, and there's this guy and this girl, and I mean, they are, you know, ugly crying. You know what I'm talking about, right? You got fluids coming out everywhere. It's coming out your eyes, it's coming out your nose, it's coming out your mouth. You're sucking it back in your mouth, but it came out your nose. 
That's, that's what was happening. And I went over and I said, what is going on? What's going on with you guys? And, she's, and she looks at me and she goes, I don't know, I've never been to church before. She's sobbing. I said, you've never been to church before? Why would you come? She said, just, our marriage is so bad and we were driving around and we were fighting and we just saw this church here and we thought, we don't even know if we believe in God, but we should go. I looked at him, I said, what's your story? He goes, I don't know, I'm an atheist. Big tears out and down. I said, are you really? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> He's not an atheist anymore. And he doesn't have all the theology worked out. He's wrestling through stuff, that's fine. But he has an experience that he can't deny, that he has to wrestle with. They just stare in the face. Hey guys, told you, definitely worth the time and investment. Thank you so much for taking time to invest in yourself as a leader. We believe if the leader is growing, the entire organization will grow. Uh, so thanks again for taking the time to listen. See you guys next time. Thanks again for taking time to grow as leaders. We are looking forward as we continue to build our culture in student ministries. 